welcome to the Polygamer Podcast, where gaming is for everyone. Join us as we expand the boundaries of the gaming community. Hello and welcome to Polygamer episode number 49, recorded on Saturday, August 6th, 2016 and airing on Wednesday, August 10th. I'm your host, Ken Gagney. This week, I'm speaking with Serenity Caldwell, managing editor at iMore, which dubs itself the number one site for iPhone, iPad, Mac, and all things Apple. After the launch of mobile app Pokemon Go in July of 2016, iMore essentially became Pokemon Go Central. Serenity wrote so many fantastic starter guides, tips, and tricks for Pokemon Go that if you had any questions about how to play the game or what its user interface meant, iMore was the place you went. Serenity and I will be speaking about that phenomenon, but also about her career at iMore, and before that, at Macworld. Serenity and I were what I call corporate cousins, because while she was at Macworld Magazine, I was at Computer World Magazine. However, those two organizations, despite being published by the same parent company, were on opposite sides of the United States, and so we never actually met or collaborated, not until just this past fall of 2015. I am on the adjunct faculty at a college in Boston, and I recruited Serenity, despite having never met her, to be a guest speaker in my class. As it turned out, I would be unavailable to teach the following semester, and the administration was having difficulty finding somebody to replace me. And so that very night that Serenity spoke in my class, after the students were gone, I said she did such a great job teaching for one night, how would she like doing it for 14 weeks? Without hesitation, she accepted that challenge and has risen to it. I have heard nothing but glowing remarks about Serenity's teaching. So again, just like when we were at IDG, we still have not worked together. We've just worked for the same company at different points in the space-time continuum. But this episode isn't about me. It's very much about Serenity, her time at iMore, the potential and pitfalls of social networking on Twitter, the gender ratio in tech journalism, and the future of Nintendo and augmented reality. Links to all the resources mentioned in this episode can be found at polygamer.net. And if you want to hear more from Serenity, you can follow her on Twitter at Setern. That's S-E-T-T-E-R-N. Thanks for listening. Today, I'm very fortunate to be speaking with my friend Serenity Caldwell, managing editor at iMore. Hello, Serenity. Hi, how's it going? It's going well. How are you? Not too bad. Not too bad. Uh acclimating back to the east coast (laughs) yes you just got back from a wild west coast tour to do some (laughs) roller derby i understand yeah um about seven days of roller derby at RollerCon, which is the annual convention put on by uh some of the original roller derby skaters for the flat track and then i spent some time at home with my folks so at RollerCon, were you competing were you training yeah, a little bit of both. Um, there are a bunch of sort of freeform scrimmages at RollerCon. So we did Team Star Wars versus Team Star Trek, and I was on Star, Tw- Star Wars naturally. Uh, we did Team Canada versus Team Australia. I was very fortunate to play to sub in to play for Team Canada as a half Canadian. It made me feel very proud of my other country. And a couple of other silly scrimmages like Team Pizza versus Team Tacos. Uh, it's, a, it's a lot of fun, basically. It's a, a bunch of people get together from all around the world. Um, and there are, I think, five different tracks, including a bank track, and including the four flat tracks uh, that go on. And it was just, it was such a good time. I would definitely go back and some training. And there were coaches from all around the world, all-star coaches giving training. Was this your first time at RollerCon? It was my first time. It was a heck of an experience. I was very glad to have gone. 
And it's every year in California, usually like late July, early August? Yeah, in Las Vegas. Las Vegas. Ooh, even better. Yeah. Usually the last week of July in Las Vegas. Okay, good to know. There will be links in the show notes to that and also to the podcast Less Than or Equal episode number 21, where you and Aline Sims spoke at length about roller derby. Yes, we talked so much. I won't make you repeat yourself here, so there will be a link to them in the show notes. But you did mention something. I don't mean to go on too much of a tangent, but you said, naturally, obviously, you were on Team Star Wars. What's wrong with Star Trek? <laughs> Star Trek is great, but my roller derby name is r 2 Detonate. So it's uh, it's kind of fitting to be on Team Star Wars. Also, my mother was the Star Trek fan growing up in our house. And while I really I love Star Trek and I have a great affinity for it, I have always been a Star Wars girl. So after your mom, you were the one to bring balance to the force. Yes, pretty much. <laughs> OK, I'll give you a pass on that. So as I introduced you, you are the managing editor at I'm More. But prior to that, your and my paths have not necessarily crossed, but run parallel many <laughs> times. This is true. This is only the second time you and I have ever actually spoken. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Outside of email and, and online correspondence. That's right. It's kind of crazy. So prior to I'm More, you were, what was your title? Managing editor at Macworld? No, I, I was an associate editor at Macworld. I started as a staff editor there. Or technically, I started as a freelance writer there back in 2010 uh, and um, started writing news for the Macworld team and then hopped on full time to do their ebooks work. In early 2010. And, and you were part of the IGG family as well, as I remember. That's correct. I was an associate editor at Computer World, which is in Massachusetts. We are a B2B publication, business to business, whereas Macworld is the consumer publication or part of the consumer branch of IDG, both magazines published by the same parent company. Mm -hmm. So you were out in San Francisco while I was in Framingham and never did our paths cross. No, I was out in Framingham a couple times. And in fact, in 2012, I moved to Boston and I'd been living there. I lived there until last year, but I never went into the Framingham office. They were like, we could get you an office in Framingham if you want. I was like, no, no, I'm okay working from home. You spoke at length in episode number 17 of the Inquisitive podcast about your time at IDG, how you saw the writing on the wall and how you transitioned to iMore. So Macworld, the print publication, went out of print about two years ago. I think it was September of 2014. Mm. And that was just a week or two after you gave your notice. Is that correct? <laughs> yeah, it was um, It was coincidental, um, but not unsurprising, I think, was, is probably the, the right thing. I, I kind of had an inclination that uh, all was not entirely well uh, with with our parent company and what our parent company wanted for the future of the company versus what kind of the editors wanted for the future of the company. And I was very, very fortunate in that I, you know, I'd been friends with Renee Ritchie for a couple of years um, and he happened to be looking for folks for iMore. And I was really, really grateful to be able to jump on to, to such an exciting publication who really, you know, like I, I loved the people at Macworld and they basically gave me my start in this area. And so it was really, I was really worried being like, am I still going to enjoy doing this if I move to a different publication? Is it is, is it going to crush my soul if I'm not working with Jason and, and the folks? But Renee is great and the team at iMore is great um, and Mobile Nations, our parent company, is, is phenomenal um, and really smart and sort of people first and internet first, which is a very big change from IDG, of course, which has had a long kind of magazine history. And... On top of that, I still get to work with Jason because he writes for us. And sometimes I do stuff for him on, on The Incomparable and on his other podcasts. 
So I've, I've guest starred on Clockwise a bunch of times. So we're we're still we're still a big happy Macworld family. Just now we're at different jobs. So how does I'm More differ from Macworld? If you're doing somewhat similar things, what makes I'm More the better place to be in this day and age? Well, I think on the editorial side, we actually do things very similarly um, and just some very smart stuff. You know, anticipating what people um, what people are looking for and what they want to learn about, as well as providing you know smart expert commentary on kind of the current events. Uh, but what really sort of differentiates um, I'm more from MacWorld for me is just in terms of the over the overhead structure. The people we have some really really smart people at the top of the the top of the chain who essentially make it their job to make sure that the editorial team doesn't have to worry about those things and rarely, if ever, asks us to compromise in a way that I felt like we were being asked to do at IDG towards the end, where it's not a lot of like, oh, well, you're just going to have to deal with random autoplaying videos in your articles. Sorry. It's how we're going to make money because we can't figure out any other option. I'm more and its parent company. We run a we rerun a much leaner ship. It feels a lot a lot more like a startup in certain ways. In that we're just it's it it's just they're very aggressive in terms of looking for what's next rather than sitting on our laurels and being like, well, this is okay, this is good. We can just keep on writing this forever. And I'm not not to say that IDG was like that, but I think that IDG definitely was hampered a little bit by their structure and by the fact that, you know, it's a company of tens of thousands and they had a whole bunch of publications and trying to, trying to pivot or turn it all on that ship is a, a, that's a very slow ship to steer. And if there's an iceberg coming, you know, it's, it's, it's more than likely that you're going to hit a couple of decks and cause some major damage before you write the ship. Whereas working at Imor and, and mobile nations is kind of like being in a tiny little speedboat. And it's like, occasionally the speed mode's a little cramped, but we can, we can maneuver pretty well, and it's pretty great. How many people constitute iMore? Um, on the iMore side, let's see. We've got um, a core staff of um, myself as the managing editor. Um, Renee is sort of editor-at-large at this point because he works in a, in a bigger picture uh, position at Mobile Nations. Uh, we've got Lori Gill, who's an excellent up-and-coming writer doing our, our how-tos. Uh, Micah Sargent, who is uh, formerly at Newsy, who does some phenomenal videos. Uh, we've got Daniel Bader, who contributes on our can- on our Canada side. He's doing all of our regional coverage, and he's he was worked at Mobile Syrup for years, and and absolutely crushes kind of the Canadian international beats. And he also works on Android Central, which is one of our sister publications. Other than that, we you know we have a pretty a pretty small staff, and then a, a bunch of contributors that we reach out to. Of course, we've had Stephen Aquino write about accessibility for the site, which has been wonderful. We've had Jason write. Uh, we had Brianna Wu write about um, the Apple TV and gaming. Um, we've had Stephen Hackett write the history of like a history of Apple column, talking about old Macs. Uh, which if you've ever followed Stephen Hackett on Twitter, he is kind of obsessed. So we've got a lot of. A lot of really, really smart people kind of contributing to things. And of course, we have Michael Gartenberg um, on as our resident analyst. And he, Renee, and I do a show called Apple Talk uh, that we just started a podcast. And we're also, we've kind of soft launched um, sort of an Apple Talk, an Apple Talk analysis channel on Medium now. So it's um, focusing specifically on analysis and reactions to news. And it's, it's pretty exciting. I'm really I'm, I'm really looking forward to the direction that we're going in. It sounds like you're very busy. 
Yes, <laughs> it is definitely it is definitely a ride, um, but it's an enjoyable one. You know, I think all the what makes the job really exciting and you know makes it fit so well into my life is we're all very passionate people who are all excited and willing to to do the work and explore new things that can make the work better. It's basically it's. Renee used to joke that like he wanted a he wanted a team that felt like the West Wing, <laughs> except for for you know online uh, online help how to and analysis. And I think we've really built it. It's a really great group of people. Except you can't do the walk and talk because you're all working remotely. Is that correct? <laughs> yeah, but we've definitely done the Skype and talk before. I've I, on more than one occasion I've I've come into a hangout, uh, especially when I was working at Emerson uh, while driving. So I would t- I'd be talking while everybody else is you know, sitting in their computer room and I'm like, yep, I'm stuck on 95. Let's talk about site planning. That is definitely multitasking. Yes. (laughs) Not looking at the phone, I should say. (laughs) Of course. Eyes on the road. Yes. While working at Macworld, of course, you were located in their San Francisco office, but to work at iMore, you had to make the transition to working from home. What was that like? You know, actually, it wasn't too bad because I actually only worked in the Macworld office for two years. Um, And then in 2012 through 2014, I actually, when I moved to Boston, I worked the remainder of two years at home. And prior to that, I had been a freelancer for Macworld for about nine months. So I had done the work from home thing um, and I had done the freelancer gig. And so transitioning back into that 2012-2013, it was definitely a change, especially going from San Francisco where it was kind of like you you pretty much had to be in the office four out of five days of the week, um, pre- preferably all five days of the week. Uh, and finding a, a good rhythm working from home is always a challenge. Uh, but I, I, I'd like to think that I found a pretty good one. I actually really love working from home because I'm the type of person where – you know, if, if something is not working, if I'm writing on an article, if I'm writing an article and like the words are just not coming, I want another task to be able to do. And oftentimes, you know, when I was, when I was working like a normal nine to five job, that task would usually be email or Twitter or something else that was still computer related. And when I'd come back to the writing, I would, my brain just wasn't like my brain's cache wasn't cleared enough to to focus on what I wanted to focus on. And working from home is really nice because it gives it, you know, that option of nothing's working on this article. Okay, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go wash dishes for 10 minutes or I'm going to go wa- like water the lawn or do laundry. And then when I come back, because my brain has done a completely different task, it's invigorated to come back and like work on the computer related thing, which is which is really nice. I appreciate being able to task switch and modulate like that. But if you're switching to home tasks during the day, I assume you're also switching to work tasks at night. Yeah, I would say, I mean, I I would say that my traditional, my typical day is like probably 9 a.m. to, you know, 7, 8 p.m. on like on and off. If I'm going to work that late in the day, then I usually take breaks or I'll go out to lunch with a friend. I have definitely done, you know, your traditional seven and a half, eight hour workday straight ahead. Um, especially like on, on site launches or things like that. And I've also done weekends where it's like, you know, when Pokemon Go launched last month, that started as, oh, you know what? People are searching for this. You know, I was looking for how to track Pokemon because no one had written an article about it. And I'm like, you know what? Maybe I'll write an article. I write for a site. And I, that was literally me sitting on my iPhone and I wrote an article on my iPhone about how to do this um, after I figured it out. And then, 
after about three more hours, we realized just how big of a story and how many people were were kind of following along with Pokemon. And that turned into my entire weekend was basically writing about Pokemon. Um, but it balances out, right? So it's like you have you can spend off hours doing that kind of stuff, but it also gives you the freedom to make a more flexible schedule and figure out like what's going to fit best in your life. Do you consider yourself to be an introvert or an extrovert? Ooh, an introverted extrovert. <laughs> and what does that mean? I really enjoy uh, performing. I'm a former theater person. So I, I enjoy interacting with people to a certain extent. I would say that like, you know, going out to like conferences or something is really exciting up to a certain point. And then I hit the wall. And at which point, once you hit that wall, it's kind of like, nope, I don't want to be around anybody for like seven hours. I need to detox. Uh, I so yeah, I think it depends on the day and depends on the activity. I can be very extroverted and very like, let's meet new people and let's talk about these great things. And, and, you know, let's be on stage. And there are also days where I'm like, I don't want to see anybody. I just want tea and I want to work on my computer for like nine hours. That sounds very similar to my balance. Like today I have not left the house except to go to the library. And it's been a wonderful change from having to see people every day. Mm-hmm. But I'm enough of an extrovert that if I didn't see people most days, I would have a very difficult time. And that's why when I have worked remotely, I've always gotten a co-working space. I don't know that I could work from home full time like you do. Yeah, I I am very, uh, very cautious and also um, careful to vary my days so that I'm not just sitting in front of like I have an office in my house, which really helps. You know, I'm not just working from my bed, working from my couch, uh, but I am. Ex- exceedingly careful to like go out and go work at Starbucks from some mornings or go work at the other one of our other local coffee shops, go to Panera, go hang out with my friends and get lunch and then work there for a few more hours, go to the library because otherwise you're absolutely right. It's like there there have definitely been weeks where I'd get stuck in the the trap of being in my office every day, 8 a.m. to 7 p.m., especially when we're working on deadline and just wanting to cry because I'm like, I haven't seen anybody aside from my fiance and my dogs and I'm going crazy. <laughs> How often do you get to work alongside your actual coworkers? Oh, um, usually at events. Uh, we've been really lucky. And then the last two major Apple events, we've been able to fly out most most folks um, and we had, a, you know, there, it also depends. I see my iMore coworkers at events, but I also see the mo- like our mobile nations family quite a, a fair amount. I do some writing for Tesla central, which is another one of the mobile nation sites, um, which Derek Kessler runs. And, um, we were down in Florida a few months back, uh, shooting some, some video how to's on the model S and the model X and talking about Tesla. And so it was really nice to be able to go out there for a few days. I was in Montreal two weeks ago to see Renee, as well as to see some other folks from the mobile nations community who run our other sites. So we were able to go out to dinner and have, you know, a good conversation. It's really nice. I think there's a good balance between, you know, it, I, I feel like everybody I work with is is absolutely a human and 3D. There's no one I work with who I'm like, I don't know who you are. And I don't <laughs> – like I cannot picture you besides your avatar. Mm-hmm. So my two favorite interviews with you before tonight's podcast, of course, were Inquisitive Number 17, as I mentioned, which I will link to in the show notes. And the talk you gave in my class at Emerson last fall, 
which was not recorded, so I can't link to it. <laughs> but one of my favorite quotes from that presentation was that every job you've ever gotten, you've gotten through Twitter. Is that correct? Yes, that's true. Um, every, every adult job, I should say. Right. So not when you were mowing lawns or anything. No, no. Probably didn't have yeah. Twitter back then. It's funny because there's a hashtag. I don't know when this is going to be posted, but there's a My first seven jobs. Yeah, the, the my first seven jobs thing. And that's I've seen that hashtag before. And I usually do that every so often because I think it's really interesting how it's how it's changed. But I was looking at those and I'm like, my first seven jobs for the for the record. I had an ice cream scooper when I was 14, um, sort of under the table money working at a local uh, lake. Then I started doing web development for um, for my teachers, of all things. My teachers were working actors, and they needed websites that had headshots and, and resumes, and I was they, they didn't know who to contact. And I'm like, I can set up a website for you. So it's like that was my first real um, sort of playing into the world of the web professionally. And then uh, my, my job at Apple, I applied to online, but not through Twitter. And then Tapatico, um, my, my buddy, Jeff Rowland, runs um, a, a website or that <laughs> he runs a, a web comics t-shirt and paraphernalia company that's quite successful and really awesome. And I literally, you know, <laughs> I, I met Jeff thanks to Twitter and he was, I, I happened to live in the same town that he did and he was very, very uh, wonderful enough to give me kind of a job when I was considering leaving Apple to go write for Macworlds and uh, which I also got on Twitter, which I got literally from a, um, from a tweet from Jason Snell uh, where he was, I was really not, not in a good place uh, work wise. I had been working as a film editor and a producer and just things had not been going very well. And I saw a post from Jason on Twitter being like, we need freelance writers if you're interested. And I'm like, I like writing. I like Apple. What the heck? And um, yeah, I, I, I got that job as a result of Twitter and I'm more, I got as a result of Twitter uh, as I, I met Renee via Twitter and then met him in person at Singleton the its first year in 2011. Um, and we'd been friends ever since. And I actually even asked, I was like, when I when I inquired whether or not I more was hiring, it was via DMs, which I think is hilarious. Thanks. Thanks, Twitter. Thanks for making my life a much better place. So how does that work? Is it just a matter of following the right people and keeping an eye on your timeline for when job postings pop up? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's not so much, you know, you think about um, how to get a job, right? You think of it in the LinkedIn way where it's like, apply for jobs and write out your resume and always be looking for things. Whereas Twitter, I really think it's more about just getting to know good people in your industry and doing the work. Uh, whereas like most of the most of the Twitter related jobs that I got. Um, yeah, Jason was the one, you know, Jason actually actively was posting for come work for us. And those are very helpful if you're trying to get a break into an industry, right? Because you want to and especially if you've already been talking to that person on Twitter or if, if you've made yourself recognizable without necessarily being um, obnoxious or annoying on the network, then they're like, oh, you, you know, you write to me and you actually have some smart things to say and you're applying to this. OK, well, I'm actually going to pay attention to this resume um, a little bit harder. Maybe it's like, oh, it's a name I know. Just like, you know, if you um, 
if you're friends with somebody in a company and they're like, oh, I'll get you an interview. You know, it's not it's not like a super leg up, but it's something. And it's it's a it, it might just be like the little bit that you need. Um, but the other stuff in terms of like, it's just about cultivating friendships and knowing the people in your industry, knowing who, you know, knowing what people, um, what people do, what they do well, what they want, what they need, and being really good at what you do well. Working for, for Jeff Rowland was amazing because certainly I didn't, you know, I had very little warehouse experience, but I, you know, I have built websites before and I was able to, you know, come on board because he was a friend and then sort of translate that into a little bit of a bigger job and working with him on the, on the website and also doing some warehouse stuff and learning some stuff about like that, that side of, um, that side of a business, which I'd never really, I'd never really explored. And that kind of stuff that like that came in handy at Macworld's like last year when we were talking about maybe doing t-shirts and I'm like, Oh, I actually know how this business is run. And like, I know what the margins are and like how this all should work. And that's, that's a really cool thing. So what I find really fascinating about Twitter is just the, the relationships you make. One of the things I said in that, in that presentation I gave at Emerson is, is, you know, um, my life, I can, I can tell a story about my life and make it sound like everything's charmed and like I'm following this beautiful predestined path. But a lot of it is really just finding the, the common threads in a lot of various disparate jobs and making them link and work to the next thing. You know, being like, oh, I worked at Apple Retail and the skills I have from Apple Retail make me a perfect fit to teach people about their Macs via ebooks. And, you know, and I, I learned how to do T-shirt manufacturing and, and storage so I can apply those skills to my current job and be more helpful in my current job. Some person that I meet on Twitter randomly might, you know, might, might be the way to, for me to get a freelance job. I've done cartooning work based on people that I've talked to on Twitter maybe once or twice or people who have seen my cartoons on Twitter. And that, that kind of stuff is really special. It's just, again, it's about being good being good, being smart, and um, and talking to the right people. But how do you make yourself stand out on Twitter? Because you have 24,000 followers. <laughs> how would any one of them make themselves stand out to you? Well, I mean, I actually have quite a few people who, who respond to me regularly, which is kind of cool. Because it's like, these are people who I've maybe either met once at WWDC or never met in person. But they're... Um, being friendly is really first and foremost, I think really important is, you know, being your, being yourself, being friendly and adding something to the conversation. No one wants, like it, when we post on Twitter, we're not, you know, unless we're Donald Trump, we're not posting to just be like, I'm bragging about myself. Please pay attention to me. We're, we're posting to start a conversation. Like we like, you know, I love talking to, to the people that follow me and the people in my timeline. I think that the conversational aspect is one of the true, you know, powerful pieces of Twitter and being able to regularly talk to people who have smart and intelligent things to say is really, is really special. Uh, there are people who, you know, I was in LA this last week and there are people who I've never met who grew up, you know, a town next to me, um, who talked to me on Twitter. And it's really funny because when I post things about LA, I almost always know that they'll respond with certain things like, Oh man, I haven't been to that restaurant in forever. And, you know, have you, did you try this or, Oh, you're at, you know, you're at the Harry Potter theme park. You should go check this out or let's talk about this or, you know, Oh, did you hear about this tech startup that start, you know, that that's um, growing three blocks from your old house. Like that, that kind of stuff is really, really awesome. Um, in terms of like, if you're a brand new person and you want to stand out on Twitter, 
it's just about cultivating yourself more than anything else. Like those 24,000 followers did not, it was not like a snap a finger and suddenly I have followers on, on Twitter. Um, it was a lot of, a lot of hard work. Um, I started, I was, I started on Twitter in May of 2008. Um, and until I worked for Macworld, again, I think the, the people who followed me were like my close friends, which is kind of how Twitter was in the early, the early days. But also, um, because I knew some cartoonists in the, in the field and I worked, you know, I, I, um, at the time I was dating a, a web cartoonist and I ended up working for some cartoonists. Um, I started to meet those people and like, I would meet them at a convention or something like that. And we'd get on and we'd have like a drink or something like that and add each other on Twitter and just talk. That's like a, a, a friend of mine, um, Daniel Corsetto, who does a wonder or used to do a wonderful web comic called girls with slingshots. And now she has this great Patreon where she, you know, does drawing tips and, and other things like that. Um, I literally met her one year, um, <laughs> at like, at a bar and then we were staying at the same friend's house. So we like talked until like three in the morning over cider about like all kinds of different things. And we've been like internet buddies, friends ever since. And it's not like we're, you know, best buds and it's not like I see her every single time she's in town, but it's still, it's this, it's this link that happened because of, you know, an online thing that turned into a small social thing. And it's just, you know, bonding over common, common threads. Um, and that's how, that's how kind of I grew my, you know, my, my follower shit. That sounds weird. My followership. Um, it's how my, <laughs> how I, how I grew my Twitter base was like becoming friends with people who were awesome, who were like legitimately awesome. And, and I'm like, you're great. Let's, I want to hear more of what you have to say. Um, and then also writing really like trying to put my my writing out there that was good writing and promoting the stuff that I thought was good and getting the attention of other people and working for Macworld definitely helped because if I wrote something high value there it would get shared and when people would share things um probably one of the first things that I really got noticed for at Macworld was styluses um not a lot of people were reviewing iPad styluses and I basically came out and I like dropped a mega review Christmas of I think 2012 and then just kept on writing about styluses and I would get people adding me all the time because they're like I know nothing about iPad styluses can you tell me about iPad styluses can you tell me about Apple Music can you tell me about you know watch OS or stuff like that um a lot of people who like start to follow you because they like what you have to say about a certain topic or they think you're knowledgeable about a certain topic and then it just expands from there and I've met so many so many amazing people on Twitter. Like that's the thing that, that blows my mind really. Like, um, I've, I have met people from Pixar. Um, I've, I have gotten, like, I got a tour of Pixar thanks to somebody I met at a WWDC a couple of years back, um, just completely randomly and who I befriended on Twitter. And I'm like, that is, that is the true magic of the internet being able to like go to places that you thought you would never go. They're like dream, dream job. I went to JPL a few years ago because, uh, because Glenn Fleischman knew a, knew a really nice person at JPL who gave us a tour. And it's like that, that kind of stuff is amazing. Like that's, that's, that's what makes me really, really love this. I've occasionally had students who are hesitant about social media. Either they don't see the value in reading other people's random thoughts, or they themselves are concerned about their own privacy. One of those students asked you, is it important to be on social media? And this was a publishing student who was asking this. How do you respond to that question or to those students? 
I think it's absolutely important to be on social media, but it's also the the biggest thing to think about is, again, how you want to present yourself on social media. I don't think any of us are our true selves on social media. You know, I mean, I I would like to think there's a good amount of my personality in my Twitter account, but I'm still I'm not for everything that happens in my life. Maybe one percent of that makes it onto Twitter, two percent of that. Um, and some things that are personal. Um, I've, I've absolutely shared. I, I drew a comic about getting engaged last year, which I shared on Twitter because it felt it was the best way in, in some ways it was the best way to reach my friends. Um, and it was a wonderful way to experience a wonderful thing in a group of a huge group of people. But that said, like you can be successful on social media, on Twitter, Snapchat, whatever, without ever actually revealing too much of yourself. Uh, a really good example of that is Daisy Ridley, actually, who's the the actress from The Force Awakens, of course, who plays Rey. She has, um, and oh, she's taking a break right now. She has a really great Instagram account where mostly the Instagrams that she's sharing are um, mostly thinking, thinking fans, little things. Um, she shared like a BB-8 cake that she made, um, and she, but she also shares um, workout workout videos right where she's like one of the things that really like that really inspired me when I was working on the force awakens is I got a trainer and after I did this he really inspired me to like want to work out on my own because I really liked the way it felt and I liked being you know I felt empowered as a woman and it was really fantastic and that's something where like she's built a huge community among around girls who didn't really know that it was okay to to work out to like want to to want to work out on a regular basis and like that that kind of stuff is cool and considered like awesome outside of the like Olympic weightlifting crowd. Daisy Ridley shares very little bit, you know, she's uh, she's not talking about her friends, she's not talking about her dating life, she's not talking about, you know, what she had for for lunch except for the occasional like, you know, burger after practice. But she's she's focused on like very specific elements of her life that she wants to share with people that she thinks might help make a difference or help people out there. And going back to like the publishing angle, it is very easy to just to be somebody who's a a publisher on Twitter who, you know, talks about really passionately about the the aspects that they're really good about um, and gives human commentary. So you're not just a link bot, right? You're not just linking to your stories and linking to stories from your publication. But, you know, if you're, you know, I'm, I am very passionate about Apple Music. So I talk a lot about Apple Music, whether or not I'm writing an article about it. Um, if some Apple Music related news comes out, I'll usually talk about it on Twitter because I have a pretty big following in that regard. And I like having discourse on that, on that topic. Um, I will, you know, I'll talk about other aspects of the Apple universe. Um, but the, the point is to find a, find a balance that's happy for you. Like there are people who are super personal, who talk about every aspect of their lives. And then there are people who talk about next to nothing of their personal life, but still manage to use Twitter very successfully. Um, Joanna Stern is a really great example of a, of a female journalist, um, who does phenomenal work at the Wall Street Journal, um, does these great, has been doing these great videos for about the last year. Um, and her Twitter is not impersonal. It's very, you can tell that it's very much Joanna there. And it, it, you really, you know, you get a peek into who she is as a person without her talking about her, you know, her wife or where she's going for dinner or what, you know, running into problems on the subway. 
Um, and she, you know, you can, you can sprinkle that stuff in here and there if it feels like a social network where you want to share those kinds of things, but it's up to you. It's, it's how much like you have the control here. There is no guideline and there is no set thing where it's like you have to share X amount or you will not be successful on Twitter. It's figure out who you want to be on this network, how much you want to share and position yourself accordingly. And as long as you're you, as long as you present, you know, you you present a human, you can you can be successful, in my opinion. But even though there are success stories such as yours of all the wonderful people and places you've met and gone to through Twitter, there are also the other side of the story. You mentioned Daisy Ridley and how she's <sighs> taking a break on Instagram after she made a pretty innocuous comment about guns. Yes. And, and gun rights and gun control and people jumped on that. And there have been other people who have been driven off Twitter. Just recently on my YouTube channel, I did a two-player Let's Play of Batman the Telltale series and I introduced my player to, who's a woman, and she, we, she and I had to have a discussion about whether or not we would be mentioning her Twitter handle in the video because she was afraid that by being a visible woman gamer on YouTube that she would attract people onto Twitter that she doesn't want to be followed by. Yeah. So that is something that my students may not be thinking about, but it is unfortunately a reason to not be on social media. Or just to be very aware of what you share on social media. This is something that, um, you know, as a woman on Twitter, I've been very aware of for, for quite a long time. Um, and in part it helps that I, I grew up kind of in, in this age in the internet era where there are very few things where I'm like, I must guard this privacy with my life. I, I feel pretty comfortable sharing certain amounts of things, but I also, I have been really lucky in that the community that I frequent, you know, the, the Mac iOS community, um, and the, the greater, like the web comics community, um, most of these folks are, it's just by and large, 98% are wonderful, kind, caring human beings who are not, you know, what we would consider the dregs of internet society. Uh, and unfortunately in other professions and professions like game development and game journalism, there's a lot higher percentage of people, whether it's just that they're unhappy or they feel like this is a way for them to, to reach out at the world or they just really hate this one person, whatever it is, it's not okay, but it's, there's, there's a lot of people. And the, the bigger your personality is, the, the more likely, the likelier you are to get attacked or, um, you know, having insults thrown your way. I look at, you know, poor Leslie Jones from, um, from Ghostbusters who basically got chased off Twitter and thankfully came back. But that kind of stuff, I mean, that's, that's something where, there's only so much that you can do. And it's, it's, you know, you're, when you're putting yourself out there as a public figure, you have to kind of steal yourself for that, those kinds of comments and reactions. And unfortunately, if you want to be in publishing, if you want to be in journalism, you know, that's, that's kind of taking the good with the bad. It's like for every, you're absolutely right for every, you know, wonderful contact with ILM, you have, you run the chance of somebody who's like, Oh, Serenity, you know, you, you don't know your shit about Pokemon Go. You're not a real gamer. Like, how dare you talk about this bullshit? Like, you're, you know, and insert insert any number of swear words. You're a horrible human being. Um, I had I actually had one per, a couple people get very angry about the fact that I was writing about Pokemon Go a couple weeks ago. 
and my general my general philosophy is just kind of to treat it like okay dude i'm so sorry that you have to you know you have to take some time out of your life to be angry because really this is not a like it's it's an article go 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 drink some milk feel better um <laughs> but you know that's not like that's not always the answer there are some really disturbed deranged individuals out there who want nothing more than to get a rise out of people um or to you know to there are some there are a very small fraction i should say but there is a small fraction of people who are mentally mentally ill and want to cause people harm or want to like track people down and like that that is always going to be a concern about putting yourself out there in a public medium whether you're you know whether you're publishing to your own personal site whether you're publishing to tumblr or twitter or snapchat or facebook you know um or or being on the air right if you're if you're an on-air anchor or if you do youtube like when you put yourself out into the world there's a chance that the dregs of the world are going to come back at you and when you're in a uh, when you're in a profession like that it's something that you have to acknowledge like yes this is a possibility especially if you're going into something like gaming this is a possibility. I have to understand this and decide whether, you know, this is this is truly the thing that I want to do and where I want to go. And, you know, you're you really <laughs> a lot of it is hoping and just trusting that, like, the community that you have built up and you have, you know, work together is more important to you than the community of assholes that occasionally live on on Twitter. And for some people it absolutely is. And for, for others, it's not, you know, if I, if I was getting the level of hate mail that Daisy Ridley got on a daily basis or Leslie Jones, um, that, that (laughs) Twitter would be a very different place. I don't know if I would still be on Twitter if it was something like that. I like at the end of the day, I'm kind of like, I want to, you know, I, I am online because it, it's a way of being close to people, you know, close to my friends, but also a way of building community and if there's not a good community here, I'm just not going to stay. Right. We mentioned briefly game development and game journalism, two industries that are pretty notorious for being male-dominated. When I worked at IDG, how would you judge the gender ratio in tech journalism? It's still, we still need work. I'm not going to say that, you know, Mac journalism and iOS journalism is particularly better than the rest of the tech sector. But I do think that we have some really wonderful women working in the field who are kind of paving the way. Tonya Angst was one of the first people I knew who was a, a woman working, you know, in this field. Um, and she, you know, she and Adam had been doing take control for years. I, there were women that I read in Mac addict growing up, um, which were, who were huge inspirations in terms of like what you could do, but I was really lucky, you know, in terms of the, the inspirations that I had, you know, coming into this field were, being able to see like when I was working at Apple, being able to see women in, in management roles and who are very smart and very capable and seeing folks like Christina Warren, um, come up from, you know, two hour from guest blogging to basically running Mashable, um, in certain areas, um, and being able to, to see that and be like, yeah, absolutely. Like it was never, never a question in my mind. And maybe that was naivety, but it was never a question in my mind that I could, I could rise up and like do do the work if I was doing good work, which I really that's that is something that our our um, our field can be credited in because it really I feel like there's a it's a much it's a much friendlier environment than some tech based fields, um, which is not to say that it's perfect. I think there's still a long way for us to go. One of the things that I have been championing at iMore is making sure that we you know 
look out for really interesting voices, voices that we don't normally have on, on our sites. Um, because it's really easy because there's such a glut of, of, you know, young men who grew up using technology, um, who are possibly very good writers, um, possibly decent writers. Um, it's, it's very easy to hire what you know, you know? Um, and one of our sort of policies has really been like, well, we already have somebody who can write, you know, who's a really good writer who can write from this point of view, but it would be really awesome to have, um, have people look at angles that we haven't considered yet. One of the reasons why I love having Stephen Aquino write about accessibility is it's like, I could write about accessibility. Um, I, I've done a fair amount of research on how Apple implements it, but Stephen actually uses Apple's accessibility features every single day. And he knows like the ins and outs of how that those are supposed to work and how they, you know, how they do work and how they fail. And that's, that's a very, you know, that's a very different angle than, than just, you know, me as a, you know, full, fully abled person, um, who, you know, who's never had to, to deal with something like that. And similarly having, you know, having female voices talk about different aspects of technology, having people of color, having, people who have grown up in different environments or different countries, even that's, that stuff's really important to me. And I feel like it's not something that we've done enough of just as a community is being able to really expand and explore those voices. Um, that said, I mean, I'm still first and foremost, my, my biggest passion is like, if, if you want to, you know, you want to be in this industry, you've got to have passion and you, you want to be able to learn. Like those are the, those are the two things. It's like if there there are people who can just come into the industry and just be like, yeah, I like tech. That means I can be a great writer, right? And it's like, no, you have to do a lot of hard work. <laughs> it's a lot of hard work. And especially if you're coming in as a, you know, there there is a certain amount of extra stair climbing and, um, and you know, glass ceiling punching that you have to do if you're a woman coming into this industry um, or a person of color or, you know, someone with any kind of disability issue. Those, you know, that's... <laughs> It's a, it's a, it's a tough road to walk sometimes, but I'm, I've been very grateful in that we, we do have some amazing role models in this community. Um, and I'm hoping that we continue, like one of the reasons why I, I try and be such a a voice on Twitter, you know, why I don't just like kind of twiddle my thumbs is that I want more women in this field. I want, you know, young girls to see that like there is, you know, there's somebody who can, you know, you can make a living doing this. You can be a technology journalist. You can help people with their technology. You can, you know, analyze the technology. You can make videos about the technology. You can, you can do this if you want to put in the work and you have the passion for it. So despite all that glass punching and all the other obstacles and barriers that may be in their way, it is nonetheless worth it. Yes, absolutely. I, I consider this one of the best experiences I've had in my life. And I really, you know, I came in a 2010 just kind of being like, I don't know if this is, you know, if this is something I want to do, but I can do these two things and it's got to be better than what I was doing before. And then within a month of doing this, it went from this is, you know, this was an escape, like a, <laughs> this is an escape route to this is something really special. And I'm so, so glad that Jason took a chance on me and like, and that's, oh, that's something also that I should have, I didn't say earlier, but what I find really, really crucial is having people in positions of authority who are willing to take chances on people who may not necessarily have the credentials or the, you know, overt qualifications. When I applied for Macworld, I had no official 
write like right i have i have written my entire life and uh you know i i like would moderate like fan fiction groups right so i've had an editing experience but i have no like i was not an, an english major in school i did not have previously real published experience i the only technology experience i had on paper was two years working at macworld but i was you know jason really stepped up and took a chance on me and that is the only reason why i'm working in this field is because somebody with power and um you know who who has been in this industry a while you know, decided to be like, yeah, let's see if this, let's see if this person works out. Let's see if this person is any good. Um, and if you are in a, you know, if you're in a position of power in this industry, or if you're in a position of power in a likewise industry, really, you know, looking, looking for the people who you think might be able to make a difference, um, and, and change. Cause it's not just about seeing like female role models in, the workplaces that you want to go into. It's also about seeing people willing to give those folks a shot. Like it's, it's not going to, it's not going to help if you don't have a, if you don't have upper management willing to address the problem. That's true. Everybody starts somewhere and you do have to put the time in and it helps to just get yourself out there on Twitter, publishing for your own blog, writing somewhere for free just to build up your portfolio. But at some point, somebody needs to take a chance on you. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's just, and, and you know, there's uh there are there are different ways of doing that. Like I've I've definitely seen people who spam friends of mine oh, and even me. It's just like, look at my thing, look at my thing, look at my thing. I'm like, that's not the right way of going about this. Yeah, I've been on the receiving end of that. Yeah, yeah. And that that sucks. Um, because it's like your thing may be great, but this is not, you know, you you the way that you make yourself known is by doing good work um and then presenting it when the opportunity is appropriate. Cold calling is almost never going to work. You might, I mean, you know, it's, you know, I, I almost never because um, my former colleague, Dan Morin, that's how he got his job at, at Macworld was literally cold, cold emailing and being like, do you have any positions available for a freelancer? Um, so that's like there, that can happen sometimes. But again, there's a difference in the positioning between you. Do you have any positions available for a freelancer? Because I really love writing and hire me. This is why I'm awesome here. Yep. Look at my stuff. Look at my stuff. Look at my stuff. <laughs> and not only that, but very often in social media, I've seen the rule of 10 to 1 where for every 10 tweets about somebody else, you can post you can post one tweet promoting yourself. And I think that should be true on Twitter as well. I mean, if mm-hmm. if if when I go to your Twitter feed, the only thing I see are links to everything you've ever written, I'm going to be really bored. But if you become a curator for good content regardless of the source, then that becomes somebody I want to follow. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And then you become a thought leader. And when you put your voice out there, it becomes something I listen to because I know you've built a reputation for bringing me good material. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So speaking of creating great content, you have become quite popular in the last two months for all your wonderful content about Pokemon Go. <laughs> We talked a little bit about it and how you got started with it earlier in the show, but I would love to know more about what has been your experience with Pokemon Go, because you have been working the mobile space for years, you've seen games come and go, but this one has caught on like nothing else, having higher engagement and user bases than things like Twitter, Instagram, Snapchat, WhatsApp, Facebook Messenger, Tinder, whatever. It's everywhere. Everybody is playing Pokemon Go, including Serenity Caldwell. It's crazy. You know what? I... I almost didn't start playing Pokemon Go. That's the whole funny that the whole funny part of it is that I didn't it's a month old today and um I actually didn't even pick it up until 
the set the Saturday after it launched. Um, it was launched, I think, Friday morning. Um, and then I didn't pick it up, I think, until about one in the morning on Saturday because I had been busy working on something else. And I was just kind of like, yeah, whatever. I'm sure it'll be fun. It's Pokemon. I played Pokemon as a kid and I loved it. But I was just I didn't even under really understand what the game was. I was just kind of like, eh, uh, you know, I'll I'll play the game when I play the game. And while I was taking a break to get food, my fiance and his friend were like, oh, we're playing Pokemon. We're going to, you know, we have to run out to catch something. And I'm like, you have to what? And they're like, yeah, so it's it's virtual reality or like augmented reality. And it's on a Google map. So in order to catch the Pokemon, you actually have to go outside to get something. And instantly my head like turns away from the computer and I'm like, Really? Tell me more. <laughs> what? What is this? What is this crazy thing? You say it, it, it helped. It, I'm moving. I get to go outside of my house. Uh, and I literally I booted it up on at 1 a.m. on Saturday. And then I proceeded to play for like three hours walking around my neighborhood and feeling absolute giddiness and glee about the whole thing. And that was before like that next morning I wrote this story on like how to track and find Pokemon because no one else had written about it. And even when I was talking with my fiance, he was like, oh, well, you look at the thing and then if it blinks, it means you're closer. And I'm like, I don't think that's right. And he's like, oh, well, it must be right. I read it on Reddit. And I'm like, no, this this actually isn't correct. And uh, so I wrote this article just being like, you know what? I this is it. Go, it comes back to my my initial stemming where it's like I just want to help people. I want to make sure that people are actually getting the correct things so that they can enjoy what they want. And this game, like this game, is a lot of fun, but it's a little bit. It has a little bit of a learning curve. It's a little bit complicated at first. Yeah, um, the user interface is not intuitive. No, no, not at all. And it makes sense when you think like Niantic was a Google startup at first, and yeah, the the interface design not what I would consider you know an, an eight out of ten guys. Um, but so I, I, you know, I start writing these things and I'm like, oh, well, shoot, this was apparently a lot of people are paying attention to this. Maybe I should, you know, try and write more things or try and look out, you know, explore more. And part of partially I wanted to explore because I was like really having fun with the game. But also I was like, oh, this is, you know, this is something that people are really passionate about and want to know more about. And then I walked to a park. And that's when the game went from this is a really fun game to this is a life changing experience because going to a park that first weekend and watching literally everybody walking around with their phones playing this game, young, you know, people who were, you know, five years old to people who were like 85 years old, all playing Pokemon, talking and laughing together despite not knowing each other. I had more conversations that first weekend with complete strangers in my town than I've had in a year. And people can can laugh at me and be like, oh, oh, well, that just means you have to be more sociable. But I mean, like, really, in the today's day and age, when do we talk to our neighbors? We're not in the, you know, in suburbia where I live. This is not a neighborhood where you're like, let me borrow a cup of sugar from you. It's not that like we don't do that anymore. That's not our life. Um, and for a game like this to unify people, to really come together and bring people out of the woodwork um, and and make people congregate at public spaces, uh, and and talk to each other about what's you know what's really cool so, you know this I just caught a squirtle it's over there and then talk about you know end up conversing about other things in your life like it really reminded me of um, of like activities that happen in college like playing you know crazy things 
on the quad and getting people into it or having people like wander up randomly and not understand what you're doing and then get involved in it. It's just, it, it has a real world virality in a way that most virtual re- like virtual games really have not in, in the last year. And because it's so communal and so show, so social, it has a crazy word of mouth where, you know, uh, something like Candy Crush was incredibly successful, but that was a slow build where it was just more and more people would see other people playing it. But it was, you know, it wasn't like if you're on your phone standing in line at the grocery store, you could be doing one of many things. And I don't know if you're doing Candy Crush or not. Pokemon is very obvious when you're playing Pokemon and people, you know, after you see a couple people holding their phones like down by their hip and walking weirdly and like laughing, you you start to get a little bit curious. You're like, what's going on? What is this crazy thing? (laughs) But why this game and why now? Because Niantic, developers of Pokemon Go, previously used pretty much the same mechanics and the same map data to create Ingress years ago. That game was popular, but nowhere near as popular as Pokemon Go. Absolutely. And I, the name definitely has something to do with it in terms of the, the hype for this game has been building for about six months. Um, and of course, we have the nostalgia factor of Pokemon. Um, the idea of catching little critters is really fun. Niantic's, I mean, I played a little bit of Ingress and honestly, I could never get into it, uh, despite the fact that I love sci-fi and I love the, the concept. Um, but Niantic, you know, Ingress was always about uh, capturing portals and working with your team. And it felt very technical. It felt like a game that a Google startup would make uh, in that it was it was very cerebral. And um, that kind of a game is and very dark. Also, that kind of a game is hard to like, I couldn't get my mother into that game. (laughs) My mother would take one look at that game and be like, I don't understand this. Whereas Pokemon, Pokemon is probably about as obtuse in its uh, in its controls as Ingress is. Um, But because Pokemon is so light and bubbly, you kind of you just kind of brush that aside and are like, no, it's you know, it it looks fun. I'll figure it out. I'm going to stumble my way through it. And then you have that combined with, you know, with the name brand of Pokemon with the, like everybody knows what knows Pokemon, even if they've never played it. They know the name. My mother knows the name and she's never played the game in her life, um, but she saw me play it as a kid. And I, I really think that that had a huge, a huge thing. The fact that it was released in the summer. Um, so it's a time when people actually can go outside for the majority of the world can go outside and explore and run into other people. And, you know, honestly, the timing year wise, not only in the summer, but, um, you know, mid uh, like early July is actually a great time to launch an app because July, August are what I would traditionally consider kind of the dead months of summer because like everybody's outside, everybody's doing, you know, they're the, the new app updates for, for Apple and Android haven't really come yet because we've just had the developer conferences, it's traditionally the the two months where we see, you know, like our lowest traffic because people really aren't on their computers searching about things. They're they're kind of out and about. And to have an have a game that really works with you being out and about and encourages you to go out and about is pretty pretty awesome. At the same time, I expect this game is going to remain popular once the students come back to campus. Yes. Oh my gosh, this is going to be such a good college game, especially if they populate it properly in colleges. Which they already, you know, the the local college by our house definitely has its fair share of Pokemon, which has been a fun, like, drive through the parking lot, catch a bunch of Pokemon. Uh, yeah, it's it's a game that I think it's definitely waned in popularity since those first 
couple of massive weeks, uh, but they're, you know, they still haven't finished rolling out worldwide. And we, of course, saw a huge spike today and the game even went down because it launched in, you know, in Asia today. And it hasn't even launched, you know, fully in Asia, but it's it, it launched in more countries there and and just like complete gigantic overwhelming server load uh, because there are so many, so many people, especially the countries that haven't gotten this yet, that only, you know, they're they're even more excited because now they've heard all of the hype and haven't had a chance to play with it. Whether whereas people in, you know, people in the US, they're like, okay, I have a chance to if I've seen it, I can go download it. Um, some of the other countries just don't have that option. Rio just got it right before the Olympics. This is such a good Olympics game. It's a good theme park game. I went to um, Universal Studios when I was out in Los Angeles and played this all the time when I was in the line. It was such a good line game. That's like it keeps it keeps you engaged and excited. So as the game continues to roll out globally and as they implement more features such as the ability to trade Pokemon among players, do you think this game will remain popular? I think that it's um, it's hard to predict what people are going to latch on to. I'm still having fun with it a month later because I haven't collected all the Pokemon yet. Um, the upwards level grind, once you hit like 21, 22, become, starts to become really difficult. And I think they might need to rejigger their level ideas a little bit. Um, and they're going to need to continue updating the app to make it exciting for people. Like the this is the kind of app, because of the way that it's situated, because it specifically requires on you going out and like searching for things. If they don't consistently deliver new updates, it's going to be hard for people who have already kind of hit end game on what they're going to do next. You know, like I think about like world of Warcraft, right? Um, where if all world of Warcraft had was just the grind up to 60 or 40 or whatever, the first, the original set of levels were, and then you couldn't do anything at end game. Like there wasn't, there wasn't any way for you to, to get more experience or become more powerful or, you know, have fun with the game. Then people are going to leave. And one of the things that Blizzard did really well is build a uh, mature, very smart end game so that even once you hit your level cap, you could still do interesting things. And that's that's going to be their big challenge is how do once once you have the initial rush of people, how do you keep people coming back to the app? But at the same time, as more players get into Pokemon Go, those who have been there from day one will have been capturing the gyms and stocking them with these high-level Pokemon. Won't that be an obstacle for new players? Won't they find the gyms rather impenetrable with their low-level Pokemon? Something that I find really interesting about the gyms is that they're stacked, right? Where you, when you first take over a gym, it's like level two, level three, and you just put one Pokemon in there. But as a, you know, as a trainer, as a, like, as a member of that team, you can help add friendly Pokemon and you can battle that gym to increase its prestige so that you could add more Pokemon there. Um, and something that um, I've seen a lot of, at least Mystic players, it's my team, obviously. Yeah, uh, yeah. Team Mystic. Yeah, Ooh. Team Mystic. Something that I've seen a lot of Mystic players doing, which I think is awesome, is that, you know, someone will take over a gym with like a super high pat, like 2,700 CP Pokemon. Then another high-level Mystic player will come up and will pump, like pump the gym full so it's a couple more levels. And then they'll, they'll actually drop a small to mid-tier Pokemon, anything from like a 40 a forty CP Magikarp to like a 400 CP Pinsir or something like that. They'll drop basically a mid-level Pokemon in there so that um, those lower-level players who are coming up can battle and get experience 
from a lower level Pokemon because you don't have to beat the entire gym to get experience. All you have to do is beat one person. So all you really need to focus on as a like as a newer player is getting one of your Pokemon up to the point where you can battle there um, and also making friends with other members of your your team. Because if you have, again, if you have a, like, if you have a buddy who plays Mystic and you're level two and they're level 25, you guys can travel together and they can take over a gym and then you can add your Pokemon, you know, your lower level Pokemon there and still take pleasure in, like, helping break down the gym and helping take it down. And so as I, I, I think that there's, there is definitely a potential obstacle there with people who just throw in one high-level Pokemon and then they're just like, I'm not going to help my gym. This is just about, like, swapping back and forth. But quite a lot of people, are, I think, are very invested in making sure that, that the newer players are still having fun. So how does you covering Pokemon Go fit with Imor's mission? It's actually a, an integral part of Imor's mission. Um, for a long time, pretty much since I joined in 2014, People like some people may think of iMore as, oh, it's like an Apple News site. But from the start, what we've always been is like helping you get more out of your Apple technology with how to's news and analysis. Um, and we've actually very recently we've taken out the news portion. So it's how to's and analysis now and and recommendations, basically. Um, so any you know, if, if there's news you know, you're only going to hear about it if we actually have something to contribute. Otherwise, we're just going to send you to the person who broke the story because it doesn't make sense for us to rehash it and just like rewrite it in 300 words. It's a waste of our time. Um, but for the last you know few years, our our mission statement really has been about like not just here's how to use your iPhone, but here's how to get the most out of your iPhone. And here are the things you need to know that like really make the platform great. And I would argue, you know, to anybody that Pokemon Go is such a great example of what makes this platform amazing. Like this, this game is a, a, a pillar experience for iOS users and Android for that matter, for smartphone users in general, um, on why a smartphone is such a powerful platform for people to, to use and explore. Um, and there are people, like I said before, the whole reason I wrote my first Pokemon article was because people didn't know there was misinformation out there. Um, and there was no one really standing up and being like, yo, this is how you do it. This is how it works. And that for me, that hurts my soul. I'm just like, I can't let like, there's someone wrong on the internet. <laughs> I, I feel, but I, I, I legitimately feel that way where it's like, if there's misinformation or if people are being uh, led astray and it's either ruining experiences for them or it's making their experience less, um, less meaningful on the platform. I feel like I have a, a duty to help them out. Um, and especially when it's something that I was already having fun with, with Pokemon. Um, and, you know, we've done that with game guides before. We wrote something, I think four or five stories on Candy Crush, thanks to Simon and Georgia, who are both uh, Georgia Dow, who used to write for I'm Warren, still does occasionally. Um, she was obsessed with it. So she wrote a couple of articles being like, here are all the tips that I've learned because I've been obsessed with it. Um, and I've done that for Alta's Adventure in the past. So it's just it's really about highlighting the things that we find really awesome and then making sure that people know how to use them. So this game is huge and most people associate Pokemon with Nintendo, which is why that association led to their stock value <laughs> surging remarkably. But the game was actually developed by Niantic, not Nintendo. Yes. It does give an indication of where Nintendo could go because they are starting to develop mobile apps. Oh, without a question. 
this is a great wide opening for Nintendo to to really see how a mobile app can take off with some one of their properties attached to it without them having to put in the development experience. You know, Niantic basically built this on the Ingress backend with some some a couple of new things. And it shows in some ways, you know, there's just definitely some creaky spots in Pokemon, but I think it gives a really good pathway for Nintendo to go. So do you think the future for Nintendo is not in consoles like the Wii and the Wii U or even mobile, their own mobile devices like the 3DS? Are they destined to become a third party publisher like Sega has? I don't know, honestly. Um, I think that, you know, I wasn't a huge fan of the Wii U, but I did love my Wii and the 3DS is pretty fantastic. I don't think Nintendo's days as a hardware manufacturer are beyond it. Just like I don't think that, you know, as look at 1997 era Apple, right? Apple is doomed. Um, I I think that Nintendo probably still could pull out of this if it wanted to and really use this as a way of doing, you know, a, almost a stress test of like, this is how people use their devices on mobile. Let's see how we can either build a piece of hardware that fits into this space or that augments this or that supersedes this, that makes it better than any smartphone could ever be. Maybe they partner up with an Android manufacturer and they turn a 3DS into an Android smartphone. Like you never know. I don't necessarily think that would be the right move, but they do have a lot of possibilities here. So no, I don't think they're destined, you know, it's, it's their destiny to become a, a software only publisher. It's definitely a route that they could take and it might be the more successful route depending on what they what they decide to do and where they want to take the company. So here's sort of a larger question. Three months before the release of Pokemon Go, we saw another huge release in the gaming space this year, which was the Oculus Rift. Mm. Is the future of gaming virtual reality or augmented reality? Oh, that's a tough one. Um, Okay, so I tried uh, the Oculus Crescent demo uh, two years ago at CES and was blown away. I thought that was really phenomenal. And then a friend of mine has the HTC Vive, which I was able to test a few months ago. And that was also incredible, but but heavy. You know, it's 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 such early days for that technology. Um, the problems with virtual reality are numerous and have been stated before. It's like the technology is heavy, and you need a huge rig, and that stuff will eventually be fixed. Like I have no doubt that technology will improve to the point where we can have a VR rig that's you know at least semi portable, or at least portable enough that you can play it around your house and not die or feel like your neck is about to explode after like two hours of playing. But um, it is a very isolationist environment. Um, and it's something where that's an isolationist environment that could turn into a very, you know, um, extroverted environment if you have something, I think, you know, the Ready Player One universe, right? Where you have everybody interacting in the real world or in the virtual world the way they might in the real world who might live continents away. But for the near future, I think we're we're still in such a big phase of experimentation. I'm I'm really reluctant to throw my hat in the ring for either technology. I think that there still needs a lot of work. Even the augmented reality, I think that the what Pokemon Go is doing is really neat. The camera augmented reality stuff is still a bit of a gimmick to me. Like it's cool. It's fun. Um, I turn it off most times because I, I prefer to, I feel like it screws up my aiming for, for trying to catch Pokemon. But I like the concept of like, oh, I can catch a, you know, I can catch a snake inside the Slytherin common room in, you know, the Universal Studios ride. That's so neat. Like that's, that is really cool. And it's a, it's a fun little, uh, it's a way to engage you into the game. But as for if, is there a clear winner or even like a clear front runner? I think they both have 
pros and cons. And I really, I want to, I want to see the technology like three years down the line before I'm like, I'm going to pick you. <laughs> no, I choose you Pikachu quite yet. Because we've seen these hardware vendors like Oculus Rift, the HTC Vive, and PSVR duking it out for the virtual reality space. But there are just as many companies duking it out for augmented reality. Besides apps like Pokemon Go, we have the Microsoft HoloLens and also Mm -hmm. Cast AR, which had a hugely successful Kickstarter. Yeah. So there's still a lot of development happening in that space as well, which I think a lot of people are overlooking right now. Yes, I, I agree. There's a lot. And also Pokemon Go, as you just said, VR can be very isolationist, and I think Pokemon Go has done more to bring gamers together than anything we've seen probably since the original Wii. It's it's really something special. I I am so excited to see that kind of... Well, you know what? It also reminds me of... It reminds me of the original Pokemon. It reminds me of going to a game store and, um, and tr- like, playing... Battling with somebody on our Nintendo or even playing the card game physically, ag- like, against an opponent... Like that, that kind of stuff is really neat, and it's I I think underplayed in the modern the modern universe where we're like, yeah, well, we can play on our headset, you know, and our PS4 and duke it out that way. Uh, but there's something really really lovely about in person experiences while gaming, I should say, because there's you know we no matter what the doom and gloom sayers want uh, want to say, we still have plenty of there's still plenty of time to to hang out and you know be with people and i still i don't think people are super you know recluses in 2016 Uh, but this really does add a a really wonderful aspect to gaming yeah i was at work a few weeks ago and somebody got into the elevator i don't know how we got on this topic but she was really down on pokemon go she's the way she put it was it's worth 100 percent of nothing because it's just a game it's worth nothing she said and unfortunately, the door chimed and I stepped off the elevator before I could really get into it with her because I wanted to tell her about how this game is giving people with depression and anxiety and PTSD a reason to get out of bed and out of the house and meeting people. And even for people without those clinical issues, we've been complaining for decades that video games are keeping kids indoors glued to the TV screen. And this game has gotten kids outside and exercising in just one week when it took Michelle Obama eight years. <laughs> it makes me so, so happy. Like I, the, there was that Facebook post that was going around the mother of an autistic child and having her be so excited to, to see her kid like interacting with, with people and actively like seeking out social interaction. Like there's a lot of potential that these kinds of games can bring. And I, it really, it saddens me when people are so close-minded. I'm like, you know what, when I first talked about this game to my mother, she was very skeptical and she's like, Oh, everybody, everybody is doing this everywhere. And it's, why are they all staring at their phones? And then I started talking a little bit about like, here's the actual community and here's why this is so special. And she really, you know, she changed. She changed her tune a lot. Yeah, I had other people talking about walking past a park, seeing everyone staring at their phones. It was like they were just a bunch of zombies standing around outside. And I'm like, yeah, normally they're a bunch of zombies standing around inside. At least yeah. now they're getting their vitamin D. <laughs> exactly. Hey, they're standing. They're standing. Because right? <laughs> you know, sitting is the new smoking. They say. Yeah. Oh my God. Now, now I just want to stand at my standing desk. I've been sitting down right now. <laughs> I'm standing as we speak because this has been a great conversation and we've gotten so many topics. I hope I haven't taken up too much of your time. No, it's been great. Wonderful. Yeah, we've covered I'm More and Pokemon Go. And if we wanted to get more into it, we could talk about your initial experiences teaching at the graduate level, which was the first thing that you ever did this past year. But 
I don't want to keep you up too much longer. So just in short, how has it been being a teacher? Oh my gosh. Well, I've, (laughs) I love teaching and it's something that I have done kind of unofficially since my Apple days, really. Um, Because when I worked at Apple Retail, I worked as a creative, which is basically one-on-one coaching on about your Apple products. And, um, and I also coach roller derby. So to move into a formal teaching role felt like the next step in some ways. And and one that I was really, really excited to kind of jump into and being able to work with students from so many different walks of life, um, with so many different kind of experiences, uh, and, and recognitions about like what, you know, what they knew about the internet and what they didn't know, which is kind of crazy and baffling. And I got to teach one graduate level class and one undergraduate level class and seeing the the differences in those students and how the students learned and what, you know, what helped the students and and how they, they, how they progressed in just a few, you know, in four months in my first class and my second class was just a seven week class. And that was really incredible to see people really kind of leap forward and put their, their whole heart into something that they were formerly really, really scared about. It was one of the, one of the coolest things is seeing kids who have never touched code before actually, you know, hard code a website and then figure out how to translate that into a WordPress design and figure out how to hack WordPress. Like that was really awesome. And seeing people who have never, who were terrified about starting a YouTube segment where I'm like, you guys are going to make two YouTube videos. And I think the first time I said that my entire class looked at me like I was, I was asking them to like commit seppuku or something <laughs> like they were so scared wow. they were so scared they're like i don't want to be on camera i don't know how to use a camera and i'm like but by the end of it everybody had made like these really awesome videos and had really gotten into it and and you know not all of them are ever going to use these skills um in you know outside of this classroom but at least they you know they explored it and now they know and they know like they know what they don't know also, which I think is really awesome, is being able to explore a topic and be like, okay, this part is really helpful for me and my career. And this part I'm probably never going to use again, but now I know that. So it's, it was a really, really great experience. And I'm going <laughs> to, I sadly can't do it in this fall and this spring because I've got, got many, many other things uh, to, to focus on, unfortunately, but it was, it was a wonderful experience. Yeah, I've really enjoyed my time teaching. Bef- uh, Ten years ago, actually, the job I had immediately before Computer World was as a high school teacher. I was teaching science writing at the 11th grade in a math and science charter school. And to this day, it's, you know, don't tell my current boss, it was probably the best job I've ever had. <laughs> but I don't think I could be a full-time teacher long-term because it just requires so much. It demands so much. So much effort. Oh, my gosh. It does. And so the opportunity to teach one or two nights a week in addition to everything else I do was just the perfect compliment. That mm-hmm. really scratches that itch just perfectly. Yeah, it's it was a really wonderful experience and a way, you know, it's it, it was also nice to see to like be able to go down that path and be like can I teach? Like can, is this something that I can actually be good at and I can actually enjoy? Uh, and the answer was a resounding yes. You know, it's, it's, it's a wonderful experience. I was so glad that I got the opportunity to. And I think it plays in well with your theater experience. People, <laughs> people might ask you how you got to be such an effective public speaker or interview subject on podcast. And not only have you done theater, but you've also been a teacher, which is like acting for four hours straight without a script. Oh my gosh. You know, I did not really appreciate just how 
how much prep that my professors had to do in college until I became a college professor. So four, four hour seminars are no joke, no joke in terms of being interesting and making sure that you're, you know, giving enough context on the issue, but not so much that you're overwhelming people is really phenomenal. But at the same time, it's shocking how quickly four hours can go. Oh yeah. At the same, yeah, exactly. It's crazy. So much fun. I always found it better to overplan than underplan, and I hardly ever got to everything on my agenda for any four hours. Oh yeah, I would. It's so much easier because you can just be like, okay, here's a, ideally this is what we want to get covered, and then you you have to play to the students' strengths and weaknesses. Like you can't railroad something down their throat if they're not understanding it. Yeah, you mentioned some of the things you found surprising that they didn't know. Can you give me an example? Um, yeah, well, um, there were students in my undergrad class who had never used Twitter or Tumblr or had even, you know, really touched it, um, which I found it's students who are also, um, huge fan fiction geeks, like loved fan fiction and like, we're big on gifts and I'm like, and you've never used Tumblr. This is fascinating. (laughs) You know, in terms of figuring out where they got their social media from and, um, yeah, it was just little little things like that, things that were really surprising either for their age group or just, you know, where they where they were in their lives. Um we had some people who were, you know, very proficient with web design and development and some people who had never even given a thought about how to build a website. Yeah, I had students who didn't know what they didn't know. I had some students who said they knew HTML, <laughs> but they didn't know how to make hyperlinks. Oh my gosh. They knew how to make stuff bold, italics, or underline, and mm-hmm. they thought that was HTML. Oh yeah, because isn't that how HTML works? That's it. Yeah. It's also interesting to see how different students in different years respond to the material. For example, I always start the semester with a brief overview of the history of internet and online publishing. Mm-hmm. The first three semesters, I would put up a photo of Alan Turing, and I would say, does anybody know who this is? And three semesters out of three, not a single student knew who it was. Wow. But the fourth semester, I put that photo up, and half the kids knew who it was. You know what the difference was? The movie? (laughs) The Imitation Game with Benedict Cumberbatch. Yeah. Yep. I'm not surprised. That's fascinating. So even though that movie had a lot of inaccuracies, it did a great job in just increasing awareness of who this person was and the fact that he even existed. Mm-hmm. And so I kind of expected that more people would know him, and I was glad to see that was, in fact, the case. Wow. So we've been talking for 90 minutes. Uh, is there anything else that we didn't cover? Gosh, no. I am um, I feel like we've, we did a pretty good circle on stuff that's going on lately. I don't know. How are you doing, Ken? You doing well? Your summer's fun? <laughs> I've been having a great summer. I just got back from my annual Apple II convention. Oh, boy. <laughs> Just like you, I am an Apple fanboy or fangirl or fan person. And I've been going every year for the last 19 years to a convention for the computer that Apple made before there was a Macintosh. <laughs> and uh, this year was the actually the biggest gathering at this event in 20 years. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. The numbers have been growing and growing. And it's great to see that many people getting interested in this machine, even people who were not born yet when this machine existed. Wow. Yeah, but I'm not surprised. Why are you not surprised? I'm not surprised because there's been kind of a resurgence in in the history of technology in terms of people being more interested in where their technology came from. Um, You could blame that on Halt and Catch Fire a little bit if you wanted to, but I really think it's just... 
people, you know, as, as the current generation is growing up, being able to, to trace, you know, trace the dots and go back. Yeah, I think that's definitely part of it. Part of it is when Steve Jobs passed away, the founding of Apple became much more interesting to people. Mm. And so they want to see the computers that he worked on hands-on. Yeah. Uh, another part of it is older people who now have, they're now at a point in their life where they have the disposable income to invest in nostalgia. That is also true. And also it's the rise of stuff like Raspberry Pi. I mean, the Apple II is the original Raspberry Pi. Mm-hmm. Which is crazy. <laughs> <laughs> so while you're off at RollerCon, I'm at the Apple II convention. We each have our very unusual hobbies. Nah, I like it. Hmm. Yeah, me too. It's what makes the world go round. Exactly. It's what's, what makes us interesting people. And if listeners want to follow this interesting person on Twitter, where can they find you? You can find me at Saturn on Twitter, S-E-T-T-E-R-N, um, and on Instagram, and on iMore. I've always wondered, what exactly does Saturn mean? It is a nonsense word that actually means Irish setter in Swedish. <laughs> I wish I did. I did not know that until a couple of years back. Uh, yeah, I um, I pushed two words together when I was 13 or 14 because I wanted a screen name that didn't have zeros after it. And this is what I came up with. I just kind of gone from there. Well, wonderful. Thank you again so much for talking about I'm more and Pokemon. My biggest takeaway from this evening is the fact that we're on the right team. Team Mystic! Yeah! Well, thanks again so much, and I will see you on the internet. Absolutely. Till we meet again online. This has been Polygamer, a GameBits production. Find more episodes, read our blog, or send feedback at polygamer.net. I just caught a squirtle. It's over there.